Chapter 10 of A Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Seven miles down the river from the lake is a flight of rapids. For a mile and a half the current tears its way down a declivity paved with jagged rocks and lined roughly on either side with angular ledges. Here and there the river widens and a pool sleeps all the day in the sunlight. But for the most part, through the whole distance, the water pushes angrily against the opposing boulders, or, finding freedom, glides swiftly over the smooth rock bottom, which slopes sharply down, quivering with the swiftness of its motion. At the foot of the rapids, the stream empties itself into a basin, broad, deep, and long. A huge ledge on the eastern side juts out into the depths. Back of this and down the stream, a green lawn widens, on the northern side of which a huge rock stands a natural camp, and many a boat has rested in the basin, many a fisher cast from the ledge his flies, and many campfire has burnt at the base of the rock. Was it dawn? Had morning come? The man rose from the earth on which he had been sleeping, stretched himself, glanced upward at the sky, and then toward the eastern mountain interrogating nature. It was yet dark, no light abroad, he thrust his foot against some brands, and as they came into conjunction they generously joined their heat, and from the ashes a flame shot upward, lighting the great rock, the plaid of green grass, and the watcher's face. I need not introduce him to the reader of these tales. It was Herbert, Henry Herbert, on his way to the old trapper's camp. For a moment he stood gazing into the brands. His boat, from under which he had crept when he arose, lay a few feet back of him, a glance at its bottom revealed the fact that it had recently met with an accident, for a piece of tin had been tacked into the sheathing, to which putty and white lead both had been plentifully applied. Young man turned about, and as his eyes fell on the mended portion, he said, Confound the snag! If it hadn't been for that, I would have reached the cabin last evening. I don't understand why I feel as I do, but I wish I had run in last night. It's the first time I've dreamed for a year. I dreamed that the dogs were dead, and John Norton chased out of the woods. What a funny idea. They say dreams go by contraries. I hope they do, but I still don't see what made me dream. The young man paused a moment, took four or five steps away from the fire, and then came back and added, It's not the dream, either. It's something beside that. An uneasy feeling. I don't understand it. I I think I saw a thousand John Nortons and a thousand dogs running for life last night. Heavens, to think the old man is in danger, and I sleeping here only seven miles away. Pshaw, it's all imagination. Born of ill digestion. I guess I ate a little strong in the carry. And the young man laughed to himself at the remembrance of the meal, at which it must be confessed he had done ample justice to his appetite, begotten by the northern air and twenty miles of vigorous rowing. Ah, uh, there it comes, alluding as he spoke to the thinnest possible film of light that had spread itself even while he had been standing by the fire over the clouds. There it comes, he added. Yes, the mountain line shows less darkly. The morning is almost here, and I'll be on the carry in half an hour. He threw some more wood on the fire burning at the base of the rock, and carefully unrolling a blanket, he drew out of it a double rifle, the favorite piece a match to the trappers, already known to the reader, and he looked at it admiringly, renewed the caps, and wiped the tubes with the buckskin patch tied around the stock. 
tried the locks and the set, not as if inspecting it, but as if it was a delight to look at the weapon he loved so well, and hear the working of its parts come sharply to his ear. So he busied himself a moment, then he laid it down upon the blanket and went to the river to wash. He plunged his head into the cool waters clear to the neck, then lifted his face and shook the water from his hair and laughed as a child at play, dipped and laughed three times, as if the tide had washed from out his memory the recollections of all the cares and troubles and all the duties that bring these, and he were but a healthy boy, happy in his careless independence. Perhaps it were well if all of us who carry burdens such as life burdens us with should find that cooling tide and dip our heads into it and laugh as happily. Then, cooled with that delicious coolness that a head bath brings to the circulation when taken in a secluded spot in the cool dawn, he returned to the fire, gathered a bough of balsam, placed it in the coals, and thrust his nose into the smoke to smell it. Then hemlock followed, then pine growing nigh, then cedar. Yes, he said, all are good, for the scent of the Lord is in them, as the old trapper says. But the cedar is the sweetest. Its soft vapor absolutely feels cool as it rolls up into the face. And what delicious pungency the nose inhales. Why do those with senses live in the cities? Is it because they know so little of odor and think that the ear and the eye are the chief avenues by which pleasure can come to man? Thus talking to himself, the young man waited for the coming light, waited impatiently. But nature never hurries. Beautiful as she is, serviceable as she is, she has no sympathy. We chafe at her tardiness, but she never quickens her step. We regret her haste, but she continues her speed. Whether we be happy and call her swift, or whether we be anxious and upbraid her tardiness, she changes neither her mood nor her motion. Her light is the same whether it shines on cradle or grave, and the glory of her brightness is poured with equal energy on those who welcome it and those who hide from its coming. We say the young man waited impatiently, but still with a certain philosophy mingled with his impatience. For as he waited he took a stick, and with it hung a little kettle over the flame. And when the water boiled he set the kettle in the warm ashes, sprinkled in some leaves of the tea, and watched it as it steeped. Then he took some biscuit from his pocket, a small roll of jerk venison, and on these made his frugal repast. He closed the meal with pouring the steep tea into his drinking cup, and having cooled it to his taste, he said, I drink John Norton's health. May the morning find him as it finds me, well, happy, and at peace. He said this quaintly, with a look of half gravity and half jest. Perhaps his dream troubled him. Perhaps the exuberance of his feelings prompted the half-serious and half-jocular act, if he had known where John Norton was at that moment. The morning light was now abroad. The sky showed itself. Even the woods were surrendering their gloom. The trail that led round the rapids was plain, at least to the trained eye. The young man adjusted his baggage, tossed the boat, across which the yoke was resting, upon his shoulders, gave one look around the campfire to see if aught was forgotten, and with his rifle in his left hand, his right balancing the boat, he broke away almost at a run on the trail that led around the rapids. He reached the other end, breathed himself a moment, then stepped quickly in and shoved the light craft away. His oars took the water strongly. The boat jumped ahead under the sharp stroke. It turned the curves as true as if a coxswain steered it. 
It took the long straight reaches as if running by a compass line. It whirled around the bend as if the force of steam pushed it along. The oarsman warmed to his work. He threw off his boating shirt. The beads of sweat stood on his face and neck. He lengthened his stroke to his extremest reach. The boat seemed to share his energy and raced onward as if itself were vital. What a splendid exhibition of strength and happy exercise the oarsmen gave as round the bends, up the straight reaches, and underneath the overhanging maples of the raquette, he raced along, while the sun kindled in the east, and the clouds that hung lazily overhead turned into floating flame. Half the distance from the rapids to the lake and more than half had been covered, and the young man was pulling a stroke that only an oarsman pulls when he's got his second wind a stroke that was getting all the speed out of the boat that it was capable of showing, when, even as his oars were at mid-stroke, he suddenly threw his chest forward upon the handles. The boat stopped ere it had gone its length. The oarsman was on his feet in an instant, rifle in hand, eye intent, and face almost sharpened with intensity of listening. I heard them whine, he said. I bet my life twas. A bay of hounds. A cry loud, joyous, and prolonged swelled out of the margin of the marsh, not fifty rods from where, balanced in his boat, he stood. Then silence. Another cry, louder, more joyous, prolonged with many a repeated bay. The cry of dogs, glad with a sudden and overwhelming surprise as of a master's return, broke like the clash of a chime of bells, hurriedly rung upon the morning air. The young man standing in the boat never stirred an inch, his eyes searched the edges of the banks in a neighboring balsam thicket, as if to discover the explanation of the mystery. He knew the dogs. He knew that they were tied, or held stationary by something more dreadful than a leash. The muscles around his mouth tightened. Perhaps a shade of pallor showed at its corners. He seated himself, laid his rifle down, backed the boat into the mouth of the creek, and shoved it round the first bend, seized his rifle, and stepped ashore then with a swinging stride struck in a straight line toward the whimpering hounds. He reached the balsam thicket beyond which, by what charm or force held he knew not, the hounds remained steadfastly and stopped, his face white with sudden terror. The hounds, whimpering, held their place. The young man suddenly reached out his hand and, grasping a young tamarack, steadied himself. An awful thought had come to him. Why were the hounds here, miles from the cabin, in a season when they were not allowed to run? Why did they keep their station with his scent strong in their nose, and wild as they were in their glad welcoming? The young man could think of but one answer. The answer was of so awful a sort that it filled him with a deadly faint. Was John Norton dead? Were the hounds guarding his body? If he should break through the balsam thicket, what would he see? For a moment, we say, he stood steadying himself by the tamarack. Then he braced himself, moved resolutely on, and with the feeling of one breaking into an awful presence, broke through the balsam thicket and stopped. The hounds tied to the pine, nothing else. Thank God! It was all he said, Twas all he could say. For as he said it, he dropped upon his knees, and putting his arms around the hounds' necks, kissed them in his joy. For a moment he thus knelt with his arms around their necks, and he rose and scanned the signs. The hounds tied, the dish not yet empty of food. A leash long enough to permit the hounds to reach the water. Yes, it was all plain. 
He read this story as if written in a book. The old man is in danger, he said. He was fearful that the hounds would be killed, and he brought them here for safety. The food is not all eaten, and the dogs are full. It wasn't twenty-four hours ago. But what danger threatens him? Has that half-breed from the north come down with his gang, and are they round his cabin now? Can't be. I heard no shot last night, and even now the fogs have lifted so the lead might be sent effectively. That instant a rifle cracked, sudden and sharp, miles to the south. My God, he said, tis his. And the young man tore through the thicket and raced through the marsh grass with a foot swift as a deer's and face fairly aflame. He reached his boat, shoved down the creek, and put upon the easy-flowing river, then set himself a stroke and pulled it so sharp and quick that the oars bent and the boat jumped like a frightened thing. A mile from the lake he shipped his oars, and with his paddle pressed the boat softly up against the ledge which projected into the stream, stepped out upon it, lifted the shell in his arms and bore it back into the woods where a bunch of cedars stood, thrust it under the drooping branches and, seizing his rifle, struck for the trapper's cabin. In ten minutes he was near the edge of the clearing. Then he paused to breathe himself and listen. Where was the trapper? In the cabin? Perhaps. Then his enemies were probably outlying around it, and he would soon be in their midst. He must ambush the ambushment. He crept, he crawled, he circled the clearing. Not a sound could he hear, not a man discover. The cabin door was shut. Was anyone within? How could he tell? Certainly none were without. Signs were plenty, footprints by the spring, footprints on the beach, not the trappers. In the bush, as he was crawling, he found a knife. The blade had blood on it. He stuck it in his belt and crept on. He reached the corner of the cabin, listened, no sound. Crawled around to the door, put his ear to the threshold, no sound. Knocked, no answer. Looked at the door a moment, tried the latch, lifted it, and then with both barrels of his rifle cock pushed it open and stepped quickly in. Empty? Certainly. The young man saw that at a glance. He saw more. He saw the singed skins, the burnt blankets, the broken chair, and said aloud, There's been a fight here. Then he closed the door and seated himself. For ten minutes, perhaps, he remained thus thinking. Where was the trapper? What should he do next? What is that? Is that not a man's step he heard? Assuredly. Somebody was coming up the walk. The unknown came on, halted, came on again. He was now at the door. Then a knock was delivered on the stout panel. The young man never moved. He simply lifted his rifle to his eye and waited. Another knock. Then the door was suddenly pushed in, and a man with a cocked revolver in his hand stood on the threshold. If you lift your right hand, you're a dead man, was all that Herbert said. The man in the door was of medium size. He never moved a muscle. He looked coolly into the muzzles of the rifle, not eight feet from his head. Then at the face, whose cheek was on the stock, and said, All right, ask your questions. Then Herbert said, Who are you? A detective, answered the man. Whom do you want? John Norton, was the reply. What for? To help me in the name of the law, was the answer. 
Lay your pistol on the table, careful, said Herbert. The man complied, then he said, Who are you? Henry Herbert. The man's face lightened. Mr. Herbert, I know you. You're John Norton's friend. I've heard of you. It's all right. Here's my commission. Read it. I'll place my hands on the door flat while you look it over. You needn't cover me with your rifle longer. The muzzles make me uneasy. And the man laughed. Herbert glanced the paper over, uncocked his rifle, rose, extended his hand to the stranger, saying, I've heard of you, Mr. Carson. I'm glad to meet you. And the two shook hands heartily. What can we do? Where is John Norton? Sit down. Let me tell you what I know. The two men seated themselves, and Henry told the detective his story, where he had camped the night before, how he had come upon the hounds on his way up, who had sensed him as he was passing, how he had heard the rifle shot and knew it was the trappers, how he had ambushed the cabin and entered, pointed out to the detective the signs of fire and battle which the bedding, the skins, the furniture made, showed the knife with the bloody blade he had found in the bush, and as he ended he said, now what I wish to know is, where is John Norton? I think, replied the detective, I can help you. You heard his rifle. Well, twas to the south, here away. There has been a fight here. The old man has won. I know who fought him. And the detective looked steadily into Herbert's eyes. Who? The very gang I'm after. I have followed them from Canada. They have something I want no matter what. I will tell you the story another time. I tracked them into the woods and lost their trail on Upper Saranac. No one had seen them. A guide, he was half drunk, told me that if I wanted to find anything in the woods that the devil himself couldn't find, all I had to do was find John Norton first. Of course I've heard of him. I took the hint, and as Wild Bill, that was the fellow's name, told me the old man had his cabin here, I started for this lake. It was well I did. John Norton is here. You heard his piece, and the gang I am following is here also. I feel confident of it. See the points of the case. The old man has run against them and suspected them. They suspected him, hence the collision. They fought him in his cabin here. He won. How? God knows. I don't. For there are seven, all told, and desperate chaps has ever jerked a man. But beaten them he has and has followed them. Their camp is somewhere on this lake, and John Norton, Mr. Herbert, is watching round that camp this minute. And the detective sprang to his feet with his eyes blazing. Herbert rose, too. He touched the detective on the arm and said, Come out here. He walked to the bank that overlooked the lake, the other following. Then he said, looking the detective in the face, You said John Norton is on this lake? I did, answered the detective. I think so, too, answered Herbert. If he is on this lake and alive, he will be here within an hour, unless he is captured. What do you mean? asked the detective. I mean this, Herbert replied, and the right barrel resting in the hollow of his right arm exploded at the word. An instant, and then the left followed with its sharp report. The two men listened until the echoes died away in the ravines far up the mountains. And then Herbert said, if living and unbound, you will see John Norton within an hour. Here's a log. We'll wait. And the two men seated themselves. While this had been transpiring at the hunter's cabin, they were having a lively time at the camp on the point. End of chapter 10